0: Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, thank you so much for joining today for our special holiday edition. I'm so excited to introduce a very dear friend of mine, Ho Young. Ho Young was born in Tiegu, Korea to Korean parents, but she was given up for adoption at a very young age. She was adopted and raised by Flemish-Belgian parents who moved to Wisconsin shortly afterwards. And although she's lived in many different countries and traveled extensively all over the world and speaks several languages fluently, Ho Young reveals that she has never truly felt like she's belonged to any people, place, country, or nationality. She shares with us here her incredible story about her personal search for identity and meaning, and her eventual reunification with her birth parents. Her story forces us to ask deeply profound questions like what happens when your spiritual practices are unable to nourish you during a time of crisis? Where do you turn? What do you do? In this extra long holiday special, we are taken through an incredible journey of self-discovery. We catch glimpses into how a particular culture can work to construct one's identity and how yoga can work to heal deeply unconscious wounds when we become present to what is arising. Ho Young's story is deeply moving and emotional and one where we have the opportunity to come face-to-face with our own selves. I know you're just going to love this journey that Ho Young takes us on, so grab a warm cup of chai, because this is one story, and one episode, and one woman you will not want to miss out on. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast.
1: I'm here, and I'm Harmony, and I'm also accompanied by Russell Case.
2: Thank you so much.
1: (laughs) And our dear friend, Ho Young. Hi, Ho Young, how are you doing? Hi. It's been it's such a long
2: time.
1: I know. It's so nice to hear your voice and to speak with you.
2: 반갑습니다. <laughs> 반갑습니다. 안녕하세요. 누나님. 안녕하세요.
3: 님? Uh, 아니에요. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to be Nunanim. I can just be... Uh.
2: With the night that the wonderful thing about the the phrase um it's such a wonderful wonderful way of saying hello to people mm. you know, do you have peace mm. It's like yeah I have peace mm. do you go and and then we say goodbye do you go in peace it's like mm. yeah I go in peace yeah no. yeah
3: say to you know you say to the person you're leaving stay in peace so right there's Ani go in peace and there's Ani stay stay in peace stay in-
2: yeah, 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 it's um, you're not supposed to say anyong of course, just just because that's like you're speaking to someone who's uh like a child, and uh, when we're with the equals, you should, you should be more polite. is more polite. you know that's no one says that except. Have you ever said it that
3: way? Yeah. Yes, in very formal settings or with uh, people, yeah, people who are much older than me that I don't know. And uh, sometimes with friends when we want to have a laugh because it's, uh, yeah, because it's this way of speaking uh, in a very formal way. Um, And sometimes, yes, so sometimes I do that with friends as, uh, not as a, yeah, but sort of in... Yeah, as a laugh, sort of, and bowing very deeply, but not as in, um, just let's say, or not—I don't know. It's hard to explain. Oh. But,
2: there's there's another wonderful phrase, han iseo. That's that, it. Seems like Korea is full of of expressions that are really difficult to explain. Han iseo.
3: Han iseo.
2: Yeah, is. Han is this like ineffable. Oh the Han. Of
3: course Han uh yeah, well that could be a whole topic in itself. <laughs> <laughs> and difficult to explain. Yeah, are you you must be in, in that are untranslatable.
2: Yeah, untranslatable, yeah.
3: Um, yeah.
2: Are you must be in, in Seoul today?
3: I am in Seoul. Wow. I wow. am Seoul. And how long have you
1: been in Korea now?
3: So continuously living uh, this time since October 16th of 2018. So just over two years. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And did you start learning Korean when you got there or did you start learning before that?
3: Uh, I studied actively maybe. I mean, this time since I moved here, I studied actively uh, when I first made my first trip to Korea, which was in 2012, mm-hmm. uh, August of 2012, I didn't know any Korean. I could not, I did not know, I could not read the alphabet. I did, could not, I couldn't even, I didn't know even know, anya, say, oh, uh, actually, that might not be true. Because I did work in a Korean restaurant in New York City. At, <laughs> and, and I yeah. also worked when I was in university, weirdly enough. And I only knew, remembered this, like, uh, connecting these dots later on, but I worked at a Japanese sushi restaurant in university, but that was Korean-owned. Yeah. So I always had this weird link to Korea, but also not. Because I I'd sure. never identified myself as Korean, so it was always... Yeah, just this weird link. But I, I never identified myself as being Korean.
2: I feel exactly the same way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you're not Korean.
2: <laughs> no, I don't identify as Korean as, at all. <laughs> but I have a, I have a bucket of gochujang in my fridge as big as my thigh. You know, there's, um, we eat Korean every day, and We're- I have, and I have now. Going on 25 years eating Korean food every day.
1: Well, it's a very limited menu. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, <but> I, basically,
3: <laughs> bibimbap? Uh,
2: yeah, we'll have, uh, well, no, we, it tends to be duenjong chige and uh, gimbap. That's what we tend to eat. And so, uh, Harmony will make gimbap for, for Jetty uh, many nights of the week. Um, but if you know if I'm left to my own devices, I'll just go grab the gochujang and the bop and uh, some gim and go to town.
3: Mm. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's great.
3: Yeah,
2: I used to eat bibimbap more. Right when I got back from Korea, I would make a bowl of rice and vegetables and and uh, and gochujang and and eat that. I think I ate that every day for maybe. Let's see 21, 27, like
3: six years. Wow. Um,
2: yeah. It's it 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 that the year that I was in Korea really got to me. And it was it made a huge impact on me. And I actually I remember I remember meeting you in in uh India. I don't know if you remember this, but we were at the the Green Hotel, and you know, it was one of these, you know huge, long breakfast, breakfast that was went on forever. And there was like 20 people there. And it was like that every day. And I asked you what your name was. And you said, Ho Young. And I was like, Oh, and I, and I started speaking to you in Korean because I was so excited. And uh, do you, do you remember meeting
3: <laughs> you at that time? Do you I that- do was- remember meeting you at that time. It's really <laughs> funny because I, you know, it's, it's funny to think about how life unfolds right and i think about that time and again like i said i don't i then and i didn't identify myself as being korean because i did not grow up culturally korean because my parents aren't korean uh, mm-hmm. so you know when i remember walking up to that table we weren't actually having breakfast with you we walked oh. up and you were at a table with some other people and I was with Pete and we walked up and then you you know we were talking to some, and I think we were meeting for the first time obviously because I said my name and uh and but I we knew some other people at the table and yeah. then you started speaking to me and I really just looked at and I had a moment where I was like where I felt like I went into some like altered state where I was like, all of a sudden I could understand everything. And now I understand nothing. What is this person saying to me? And I I sort of just looked at Pete, and I was like baffled. And then I looked back at you and then you said what you said again. And I just, I looked at Pete again and I was like, it was really, I was so bewildered at that moment. And then I looked at you and I think I said, are you even speaking English to me? (laughs) i I couldn't even like um, what language you were speaking to me (laughs) it was like and then yeah it was so bizarre and then i think after and i was very i was quite triggered by that yeah because then you were like oh i'm speaking korean to you and then I think that's what was, tra- because you were saying, oh, I'm speaking Korean. And then I think you, I don't know. Do you remember what you said at that time?
2: Yeah, I would have said, um, uh, uh, are you Korean? Uh, so, <laughs> and I would have said, uh, do you speak Korean? Uh, you know, you know, I would have said probably the, one of those three sentences or maybe all of them together.
3: No, 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 but I'm saying after I said, are you even speaking English? <laughs> because, you know, and then, oh, maybe you said something like, maybe you'd study in Korea. But I remember, like, when we walked away from that, just looking at, again to Pete being like, wow, that was just really weird. And then he being like, yeah, he's, you know, he's just trying to show off probably and, and, and you know, whatever. Yeah. Show you what he knows and stuff, and I was just like, but what's interesting when I talk, think about that time is it didn't occur to me why that was triggering to me, oh. and it was triggering to me because I felt absolutely no connection to Korea, and yeah, that yeah, so and then I think I because my life at that point was so saturated in Ashanga yoga and Mysore and stuff that I didn't look at that until later, until, and then that has been such a deeper part of my journey, let's say. Um, but at the time, instead of looking at that and being like, wow, this is really, um, triggering and maybe I should look at this. It was just sort of like, oh, right. And just get on with the day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: I could tell immediately that you, you were triggered and that I was in trouble and I felt really, I felt really embarrassed. And yeah, I think absolutely Pete was right that I was, you know, I was, I was showing off, but, but I was like striving to make some kind of connection. And instead of making a connection, I was making a division and I was like, Oh, this really went badly. And I, I feel like I, I even was careful around you ever since. Mm. Like I was careful. Like I got to make sure I'm not. I, I don't. I don't screw this up any more than I already did on our first impression. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny to be talking about that now, uh, especially me being in Korea and especially me having come back into you know in my. Well, coming back and going forward in my journey, as I have, you know, uh, yeah. that that was the starting off point of our meeting. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, I think for me, what was triggering, if I th- uh, think about that, is that I feel like probably my whole life I've had to confront other people's assumptions of who I am, or my sure, yeah, outward aspect. And that had nothing to do with my internal space. And so when I was being confronted, let's say, and it was confronting that because I couldn't, I, I really like, I couldn't understand. I didn't even know that you were speaking Korean, you know? Uh, And so, yeah, it was very confrontational. Um, And and I I, was trying really hard because I was
2: convinced you were Korean. And, (laughs) and, you know, as I was, so I was, it was confrontational because I was trying really, really hard. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, good because, you know, it's funny because I think growing up and um, even now in Korea, you know, it's like people don't see me as Korean. You know, when mm-hmm. I grew up, uh, also this was a little bit misleading by my adoption file. It had said that my father had come from southern China. So I grew up thinking I was half Chinese. And then when I met Korean people, they would be like, oh, yeah, because you don't look completely Korean. And then I thought that my whole life, that I was until I met my father and asked him. And then he was like, I'm not from southern China. I'm Korean, you know, Mm. you know, So that was. uh, But here, even now, people. Sometimes. I mean, it's that's, I think here, it's more about the way I carry myself, the way I dress. Yeah. Uh, they're always like a way cooking like foreigner.
2: Right. Yeah. And 외국인.
3: especially if I open my mouth to speak Korean because my Korean does not sound like a native Korean speaker. Yeah. And it's like I, the level of about the time that I've spent here. I, I probably speak like a two year old.
2: Yeah. <laughs> when I was there, I was with a, a number of, of American expats. And a number of them were Kyopo, uh, And if I'm pronouncing that right, which I, I think means adopted Korean.
3: Kyopo, I think, is Korean American. Oh, um, yeah. Good. Ibyangin is usually the name for adopted. Um, oh, I remember that
2: word. Okay, like yeah, that sounds right.
3: They would yeah. ever use whatever country name, like Miguk is America. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Maybe they, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. That so the um, the adopted word sounded really familiar when you when you said that. So I was there with a number of adopted Koreans who um, were facing an, like enormous hostility. Um, one of my friends, Kate, for example, who was Oral Hershiser's niece, and we were going to school together in Chicago. And we both ended up going to Korea at the same time. What's her full name? Her name is Kate Hersheiser, but now she goes um she invented her own name. So she's now Kate hers
3: uh Re. And uh Oh, I met her last year here. You didn't? Yeah, because she came here and she did she did an art exhibition and yeah. she did to she reached out to so I don't know how someone connected me with her, maybe because when I came here in 2017, I also had an artex. So someone contact connected us, and then she was doing this art exhibition, and she needed people to help uh, fold, or, like make these paper flowers. So yeah, a couple times.
2: <laughs> wow! So she did. We did a number of performances together in Seoul, um, and I at one point I had a, a Samunori group um do the which is a uh, of course for our listeners it's a it's a it's a folk a, tr- a traditional korean folk band with drums and they drummed business people instead of the drums you know like they would slap <laughs> oh, their bottoms yeah. in their back <laughs> and Kore- and um uh cuz kate had introduced me to a whole group of uh socialist samonori troop tr- group um, um. We did that. That was right after IMF, so it was very, you know, it was very kind of a, a part of what was going on in Seoul at that time. And so, like for the audience to see business people getting their asses whipped was awesome. And then we we came back to Chicago, and she she did a performance called um, "How to Be a Proper Korean Woman." <laughs> And so she needed an example of how she could make it turn anyone into a proper Korean woman. And she used me. So I, um, so for, I, I, I dressed in drag and spoke Korean on stage as a proper Korean woman for her.
3: Wow. Did you dress in Hanbok?
2: No, no. I was dressed kind of like more like a prostitute, but like really like fishnet stockings, high heels, um like a like a Ewa Day girl. Wow. E d E Day girl, yeah. Uh those yeah. those girls are getting all of the plastic surgery and dressing dressing up and um or at least at that time in 98, that's what they were doing. Uh yeah. Iwa at Ewa Women's University. Mm. And so I dressed as one of those girls, and it was incredibly inflammatory, and we got catcalled by the Korean women in the audience and uh it became a, a a huge scandal at the school um, because of this notion of like um can you can could Kate speak for and about the Korean experience or not?
3: You mean as a Korean adoptee, yeah, yeah, that's interesting uh, yeah, because I think our lived experience and our perspective is always going to be different obviously um Mm -hmm. because we didn't grow up with the culture and then we're always going to see it through a lens that holds our individual or collective pain from being separated from our culture right Mm, so um and then there's also like the korean people's um their collective pain and their um sense of shame or responsibility in having uh sent almost you know 250,000 babies abroad you know right um uh, mm-hmm. so like we're right. we're a diaspora of ourselves you know
2: yeah the han um, diaspora yeah
3: yeah so yeah han that feeling of um suffering but with sort of this redemptive uh, uh, yeah very um yeah very uh, hard to explain but um, when especially when i did my had my exhibition here someone had already explained to me that term and then it was sort of like oh it all made sense it was like that feeling that i had carried my whole life without knowing or being able wow. to Uh, give it a name, you know?
2: Someone described it to me once um, that if you think about it as as children, like so Korea is the child of China and Japan is the child of Korea, then how would it feel for you to have your child come and abuse you? This is Han. You know, this is an incredibly complicated and and conflicted feeling when when you have this bad relationship with your
3: child. How wait? So I don't understand. How is Japan the child of Korea? Um, Korea?
2: It's the it's the thought that the culture flo- flowed from China to Korea to. To Japan, and that Japan is the beneficiary of civilization from the Korean people. For example, that like, sumo is Japanese, uh, is, is Korean, uh, uh, flower arrangement is Korean, all these things, uh, Kan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism is, is Korean derived. And so all of these things that we think of as very Japanese come from Korea. And so for Korea, for Japan to turn around and colonize and abuse and um, take three hundred thousand Korean women as, as um, slaves, you know, sex slaves, is incredibly abusive. And so we were being abused by our by our child. This mm. is awful. This is Han. Huh? Huh,
3: interesting. Yeah, that's not how I was. Explained Han, but mm-hmm. that's interesting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to explain, so there you have to, right? So there has to be. T-
3: yeah, the way examples. I was explained, and now I'm I'm completely um, blanking on the name of the movie. But it's done by this very um, prolific, famous Korean film director, and he uh, ha- directed this movie about. This uh it's around traditional music. Maybe you'll know the movie. Anyways, and uh it's it's around the singing, singing also.
2: Uh, oh no, yeah, the um and not samonori, but um oh what's the other word? The uh, pa, uh pansori.
3: Yeah, pansori. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. and I can't remember the name of the movie right now, but anyways. Oh, it's so um, sad. There's a uh So there's sort of like this weird thing about adoption in that, in like that the mother passes away and that the man that she's with takes on both children and trains them to play music and to sing. And then, but his way of training them is so vicious that it's almost abusive. (laughs) And they go from like, they're wanderers, they're wandering musicians, right? I mean, this yeah. is back in time, and they go around, and then the boy—I uh, mean, he's not a boy anymore. He grows up and he he runs away, and the father does not want the the girl, and who is now a woman, to run away. So he blinds her by giving mm. her, by uh, like sprinkling this powder on her food, and then yeah. she's forever sort of bound to him, right? Because and dependent on him because she's blind, and so yeah. that was described to me as Han.
2: Yeah, I think that is Han (laughs) for sure.
3: They were like, if you watch that movie, you will uh, you will understand Han. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Complex, very deep, um, but it talks about like this wound, uh, Mm -hmm. woundedness.
2: Yeah, Um, it's that's so interesting because because when I was there in '98, it was to me, there was like a little, there was a little germination of K-pop happening. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of K-pop bands that were really f- coming out and getting big nationally only. But where I was in Andong, in near Daegu and gyeongseongbuk Bukdong, I was the only, I was the only Caucasian. I was the only Westerner um, because you know forty five thousand Canadians left a month after I got there because of the IMF so I was totally alone um in Korea, and it was just so in that very traditional part of Korea, it was just so saturated with this feeling mm. of of melancholy
3: yeah, and especially if IMF had just happened, I'm sure that that added to it right
2: yeah the the suicide rate doubled um, Korean women were, were jumping out of the high rises because their sons were coming back home from school because they couldn't afford it
1: Mm.
2: anymore. So that was incredibly embarrassing and loss of face. They were jumping out of the, the buildings instead. Um, and, but I wonder now with like 20 years later, I had, I had, I had heard that perhaps like there would be a, This, this, this change, this transformation in Korea—that there would be like a sexual um, awakening, uh, a a cultural revolution—that everything would, maybe, everything is much brighter now and less infused with that that feeling. That
3: I think that it's still evident. I mean, statistically, I think Korea is the uh, highest suicide rate in OCD countries uh, still. Mm At the moment, but at the same time, there's this very strong contradiction here, right? So they're very, very, very technologically advanced, but there's very traditional in many ways, especially yeah. in thinking and in their behavior and, um, yeah, in, in a lot of things, in business, I think in hierarchies, and uh, just many ways that are still very traditional, um, mm-hmm. but then they are also... You know, like, I mean, I'm not knowledgeable about K-pop in any way. <laughs> K-pop, you know, has made the crossover to a worldwide phenomenon now.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. That Parasite won the Oscars last year. You know, just phenomenal yeah. on, on the map, let's say. But, yeah, I mean... Wow, that movie also is a whole nother discussion. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah. but at the same time, yeah, there's this weird paradox that happens here. Like I feel like – and like what you mentioned about the plastic surgery and, yeah, the makeup and all of that, it's like it's covering something or mm-hmm. trying to – alter something and you for me it's like one always has to dig deeper what is one trying to cover with all that makeup and that plastic surgery and all of that Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. to go and dig deeper what's underneath all of that you know Mm -hmm. um and there's a lot in this country i mean like any place but uh you know i think everywhere globally especially this last year uh, so many things have risen to the surface uh uh around you know and i I feel very removed from it actually in Korea because uh I don't watch the news rarely uh but obviously mm-hmm. you you would have to be almost underground to not know about the things that are occurring globally uh, mm-hmm. around yeah. matter and all of that um yeah. so but korea um just like like I said, every other country just is multifaceted and when you start to peel the layers back uh, there's a lot happening
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. so maybe we should we should go back a little bit and and talk about where you grew up and how you how you got to here um you is it right to say that you're you're dutch your parents were dutch
3: no they're belgian they're Belgian. They're Flemish. Family. Flemish. Okay. Okay. Forgive us oh, for that. Um, so you grew up. Um, so I was, uh, I was born at Tegu. Oh, you and, were? Yeah. I oh, was yeah. born in Tegu and then I was adopted. Uh, and my parents are Flemish, both of them from sort of Antwerp area. Yeah. And they were living in Rome, Italy at the time that they adopted me. Wow. Oh,
1: wow. And so how long did you grow up in Italy?
3: Very short. Uh I like I was adopted there but then my father got a visiting professorship in the United States and actually you know my parents told me that he got two offers one of them being in South Africa and then the other being in the United States and because This was the mid-70s. They chose the States because, obviously, with apartheid in South Africa and us being a racially blended family, they felt... Because I have an older brother that's adopted from South Korea as well. uh, Oh, wow. They felt like it would be better for us to go to the States. But the States, as we know, is highly... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: also, highly resentful of blended families.
3: I don't, I don't know, like, uh, racial, not racial. So I don't know if they saved us from a lot of suffering because we experienced it all, you know.
2: Yeah. 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 I think the United States and racial animus is, is synonymous. Um,
3: what part of America did you grow up in? So my dad got that visiting professorship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So... Oh. That's a lovely yeah. town. Yeah, so we were there for about a year, and then uh, after a year, they decided they wanted to stay longer,
2: mm-hmm. and
3: uh, because we had just seen that one little pocket of the Midwest, let's say, and surrounding area, and then uh, he got, I think, a visiting professorship for us at uh, in Maryland. Then we went back to Madison, and then we went to University of Washington, and then we went back to Madison, and then we went to upstate New York. He became chairman of the uh, engineering department at SUNY New Paltz. Mm -hmm. So we went there, and then my parents, and a bunch of other circumstances happened, but my parents uh, separated, and so my brother... And my mother and I we went back to Madison and my father stayed out on the East Coast.
2: Wow, see so you're really a cheesehead.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes and no, you know, I feel like almost just just going back and saying all those places like mm, different lives, different, yeah. Indeed. Like
2: it's so hard at a certain point to really say what it is we are when it, 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 it's also colored by context and, you know, what kind of reactions we have when we're in the place that we are. Uh, I, I feel very similarly. People, people ask me, you know, where I'm from. And it's like, well, where are you from? I'm mm-hmm. I'm probably from there,
3: you know? Mm-hmm. And my parents had been, Born and raised, or not even just born, but raised in Wisconsin. Maybe I would feel more an affinity. But I feel like my parents raised us quite European-like. I mean, mm-hmm. in a certain way, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely, yeah, would not say Belgian because I don't really know. Also, like as I didn't know what Korean was, Belgium is the only place that I've never really lived. So, and I have the passport of Belgium by proxy by my parents, but I've never lived there. So yeah, when you yeah. think about identity construction, the things that probably would have defined me the most, I felt the least yeah, wow,
2: yeah,
1: that's so interesting that like born Korean but not identifying as Korean to, and then raised in a in a culturally somewhat you know. Belgian sort of environment or European, but also not really related to that either. And then growing up in America, but also not American
3: exactly. Not relating <laughs> to it. You know, because when we moved to States, my mother didn't speak any English, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, we very much had like, I'd say an immigrant experience, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, it's one of the things that I was really attracted to about yoga was this kind of understanding that, that our personality is a, is a construction and that you, you keep peeling back layers of things until there's nothing there, but consciousness. And that really agreed with me because I felt like I'd been constructing my personality ad hoc all along, not being from anywhere. Mm. And and so, you know, yoga was, was something that was like, wow, okay, this, this thing, this is a, this is an actual thing that you, that, uh, is, um, uh, in, in okay. indestructible. Uh, so I'm just, I'm just wondering, when did you start thinking that you wanted to, to do yoga? Were you, were you in university or what was, what happened for you?
3: I was at university. I started university very young. I was 16. Oh, um, wow. So Where were you? I, I actually went to university of Wisconsin, Madison uh, nice. because I had graduated, I graduated high school early. And at that time, uh, yeah, I couldn't really afford to go anywhere else. So I, uh, you know, at yeah. that time in state tuition was at state schools were really, was really cheap. So it's an
2: excellent school.
3: Yeah. So I went, but I had a very mm, complicated relationship with Madison, let's say, uh, (laughs) for various reasons, but I don't, I wouldn't, it's a great school, but I don't think it was a great school for me being, Mm -hmm. I think I would have maybe thrived more at a very small liberal arts college somewhere. Um, But I play that, but I don't know, but a big 10 school, that's huge. Right. Uh, Yeah. I didn't
2: like Bennington or Sarah Lawrence might've been, might've been better for you.
3: I don't know, but you know, I I was so young also that I had no idea what I wanted to study. I was, um, yeah. So I found out of that lostness, let's say I found yoga. And was it a
1: class that was being offered at the university or like how on earth did you end up in a yoga class?
3: No. So, you know, it's really, it's quite liberal and it's quite um, it's quite progressive in, and, and uh, quite, you know, even at that time, I think there were a lot of things happening there that were uh, quite forward thinking and yeah. even in terms around nutrition and I belong to a co-op, that you know, that had bulk foods that was like, you know, you you know, it was not um packaged and all of that. Yeah. And uh I remember going to this co-op and always seeing this little flyer for yoga. And it's like everything else is in black and white, but that one thing seems to be in color, or that one thing mm-hmm. seems to be popping out at you and speaking to you. Yeah. You know, and it was like that. Um, and so then at a certain point I felt like, okay, I just need to call this number and get some information. Um, and that was Phoenix rising yoga therapy. Uh, it was not like for general classes. Um, and it was with this woman named Anita and I, my first, so we set up, so it was one-on-one. It, I don't, it comes out of Cripolo, Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah and it's, I didn't know anything about it. Um, and I went and then she, you know, she told me a little about it, about that it was a therapy, but it was non-traditional in terms. Of it wasn't like talk therapy. It was using the body through different yoga postures. And, uh, you know, I had been very, connected to my body, let's say, through physical um, activity growing up, because I had been a competitive swimmer and a competitive runner. Um, But so but I didn't know, you know, anything about yoga. So at one point, she asked me, I didn't know this at the time, because I didn't know the name of the asana, but it was Ustrasana. And I went into Ustrasana. And going back into it, was so painful, but not physically painful. <laughs> there was mm-hmm. thing that was ho- happening at my heart center that just like needed to release. But going back into it was—I don't want to say traumatic, but it it, wa- it was because I inst- I immediately broke out crying and sobbing, and then she directed me into child, and I. Th- I, I don't know. I sobbed for an eternity. Like it was like I had not cried much growing up. I mean, I think the words to describe me often when I was growing up was either aloof or stoic or cold. Um, I had this real sort of um, protective shell around me and yeah. um, a way of making my Base, I guess, sort of mask-like, like non-expressive. Um, right. in, because I think I, I was always trying to gauge from other people how I should act or feel.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, anyways, that was, it was such an, a profound experience. And it was like all of this that was being held inside of me came forth. But in a non I could not talk about, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I was blown away and she was shocked. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The right. Um,
1: huh. she, she said it was therapy, but she didn't expect it to be like <laughs> that <laughs> intense.
3: It was, intense. I mean, it was cathartic, but at the yeah. same time, I couldn't explain what was cathartic about it. Mm-hmm. You no, know? um, yeah. but it was just, it released something, you know, um, and then I was both frightened and attracted, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That caused this completely unexpected reaction in me, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I continued to do some one-on-one sessions with her, but... Uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of money at the time. I was young. I was funding my I was, you know, supporting myself through college. And uh she then she just sort of said, Oh, why don't you just start doing like just my general Hatha Yoga classes like a few times a Mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. I also remember doing a workshop with her. And then it's it's really funny because this was in nineteen I was six it was nineteen eighty nine.
2: Wow! And I
3: remember yeah. her brother coming, and her brother did ashtanga yoga. Oh, weird! Oh,
2: wow! That's incredible.
3: <laughs> yeah, and you know, I but the workshop was not an ashtanga yoga workshop but because it was like an all-day sort of thing and and it was because she had come through yoga with therapy there were a lot of therapeutic things we did but also that were quite frightening to me like yeah. like beating a pillow to get out like rage and stuff and that kind oh, of
2: that kind of stuff
3: that kind of emotional kind of like my family we were not that way we were not expressively emotive you know yeah. I, in some ways, yes, because I feel like I had seen sometimes both of my parents, but especially my father, express rage at sometimes in a very explosive, just almost um, way. But for the most part, we were not an emotive family. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of thing, um, again, was very, um, in some ways, frightening to me to see... Mm-hmm all these people expressing this, you know, sort of thing. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So that was my very, that was my launching point, let's say. Wow. um, Yoga. And it was like such, you know, I think because I was not, I did not associate yoga as a physical exercise, nor what, it wasn't what I was looking for as a physic. It was more of a, it's always been a therapy and it's always been about the spirit because Mm -hmm. what happened to me was so beyond anything that I could explain or verbalize. And when I think about my life and my life trajectory, I would say that, I was very, very cut off from my spirit. Mm-hmm.
2: Did did this this the the brother? Did he end up introducing you to Ashtanga yoga? How did you discover that he did it? Or
3: I think she had just mentioned it, and I only remember that later. You know, oh, I, right! I found Ashtanga. then it trickled back as this memory, like, oh, I've heard this word before, but not necessarily yeah. practiced. But mm-hmm. what I remember, I mean, you know, memory is such a funny thing, right? I mean, because it's like a construct, right, of our mind. Yeah. But I do remember him being like sort of that classic yoke ashtangi body, male body, you know, thin, wiry, like tall, you know. Um, yeah. So... Um, yeah it's funny I can't really remember his surname, and I can't remember his name, so it's, but at that time, there wouldn't have been that many practitioners, you know,
2: so how did you end up finding what happened next
3: in life or in yoga? yeah both, <laughs> both. Uh, many, many 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 things happened, but in terms of yoga uh yeah, I just I kept on practicing more or less in. Hatha yoga classes and then practicing different kinds of hatha yoga classes, uh, integral, you know, whatever sort of was available to me or whatever I came across. Shivananda, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of Iyengar influenced, yeah, just sort of what I came across. Um, And, but then it was. In New York City, I moved to New York when I was 18. Uh, Wow. I sort of, I dropped out of university. um, Maybe the second time, I'm trying to think. I dropped out of quite a few times. (laughs) 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 Uh, And not always for good reasons, but um, so, and... Yeah, just, wow, this is like a long story. But anyways, Mm -hmm. I I won't go into it. I I made my way to New York City because on on the earlier time that I had dropped out, I had traveled around Europe by myself. And I met these women who were studying abroad in Oxford because I was visiting a friend of mine in Oxford. And they were all going to Sarah Lawrence at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, And then... This couple, uh, Kimberly, who later became my roommate in New York City, she's a Philippine adopted, um, and her girlfriend, Tola, who is African-Canadian, I, th- anyways, they were like, what are you doing this summer? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, we're going to be in Barcelona. Why don't you make your way down after your – because I was going to go to Italy. I mean, I was on this sort of like just, yeah, traveling Europe thing visiting relatives, visit, doing different things. Um, mm-hmm. and so we met up in Barcelona and then, uh, I was there for a, And then I went back to Madison, went to school again and was very deeply unhappy. And then talking to Kimberly on the phone and then she was like, why don't you move to New York? And I was like, Oh yeah, why not? That sounds like a great <laughs> idea. <And I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> right there, I was like in New York city, uh, living with her in the East village, you know, <laughs> wow. Wow.
2: <laughs> right there with like David life right next to you.
3: <laughs> exactly. So that mm. was my, so in, I always had this connection with Shivananda because it was probably the largest, um, organized yoga system at the time, maybe. Yeah. You know, especially in the West. So, yeah. uh, but I made my way to Jiva Mukti.
2: Right. You know, yeah.
3: Life, so. Huh.
2: And then, <laughs> so not to Robert Moses and and Shivananda, you went over to David Life and and Mukti.
3: Well, I did go to the Shivananda Center in New York, and I actually at one point before I started made my first trip to Mysore. but uh, I I went to their ashram in the Bahamas and uh, did their Shivananda TTC and was you know, seriously contemplating ashram life. I felt like at this, at that point in my life, I did not feel like I fit into the modern world as we know it. And I felt like, you know, very out of place. And I was like, well, maybe ashram life is where it's at. Mm -hmm. Um, But during that TTC, which I learned a lot, I mean, it was so comprehensive, but I was, yeah, I was not, I felt like I had a lot more to live before I could commit myself to my mm-hmm. life. So mm-hmm. I went back to New York, uh, and I had already been do, uh, doing a lot of classes at Jiva Mukti. But then they started a Mysore Style program at Jiva Mukti. Yeah. Um, now,
2: was that, was that Russell or was it Eddie that was working it, or were they working it, David and Sharon?
3: So I went to... A weekend workshop that they had as a sort of as a intro because I think they always had well they're you know the regular Jiva Mukti classes are sort of a hybrid of Shivananda and Ashtanga Yoga. Mm-hmm. At back yeah. then they were a hybrid with music and chanting and you know everything.
2: Yeah, um, veganism.
3: Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, vegan. Yeah, Erin from a lead class. She like she stopped the Asana class, rolled out this TV you know, and then proceeded to show us a video about animal cruelty and vegan. And yeah. it's like, well, you know, because you've yeah. done sort of all this, you were really open and sensitive. And then you just saw this horrifying video. And was like, yeah. <laughs> wow. yeah.
2: Actually Suda in, in New York, in Chicago did something really similar. He would show us an autopsy of a guy having a, um, having the, his plugged aorta, uh, you know, uh, roto rooted. And like this thing, Three foot cheese string pulled out of his, his heart. It was like, Yeah, I'm, I'll be vegan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want from me. I'll go vegan. Wow. <laughs> These yoga classes in the 90s. Yeah.
3: Oh, man.
2: Okay. It, so
3: they had this it, it, workshop, and uh, I think it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday to Friday was, you know, it started with a demonstration, then a little bit of leg. And the demonstration was, David was definitely in it. Uh I can't remember who the other two but they had three people basically uh demonstrating, practicing. One practicing mm-hmm. some primary, one practicing some intermediate, and one practicing some third series. And you know, third series the arm balance. I mean, they're mind blowing, right? So yeah. it's like I was I remember again, it's again like my you know, my experience talking about how that yoga flyers seemed to be in color when everything was in black and white, the same yeah. I had a visceral experience watching this demonstration. It was like time sort of fell away. Sounds sort of fell away. And it was just like my body sort of just like, I don't know. It just sort of like went towards the back of the, like, it's, it's, it's very hard to, explain. but, and I, again, had, I, I started to weep and I had this very strong reaction to it. And I was just like, again, just completely mystified by by this reaction. I was (laughs) coming out of nowhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. Wow. And then the next day uh, we, because it was an intro to Mysore, um, then the first day was a little bit of lead and then the second mm-hmm. day, they you know they explained what my source style was and and how you had to memorize it and all of that, and then I was like, oh yeah, this is my practice, you know, because I mm-hmm. think that up until then I had been really just searching, searching for a practice that I could connect to, and even though like I say that I learned so much uh, through the Shivananda and it was so comprehensive, especially you know, with the philosophy, the asana, the meditation, the bhakti, the chanting, mm-hmm. everything, the kriya. Um, I don't know, just as the practice, I just connected. And then it was just sort of, it was over. And then I just knew, you know, that this was. um And at that time, um yeah, Guy was teaching the mm-hmm. my program. And so Guy was. Yeah. It was my
2: teacher he, oh wow, okay. He told me that he was there and taught there, and then at some point, Eddie broke off and um I think Eddie offered guy a job, and guy said, "You know I'm tired of working for other people, and I don't want to be told what to do anymore and then started and then went off to Tompkins Square Park, alphabet city, and just and opened up a place there. Did you make that transition over with him?
3: I didn't because the timing was all sort of interesting. So this was in 1999, early 1990, or late 1998, mid because then he said, "Oh, I'm going to be going to Mysore. Um, I'm going to get getting married there."
2: Mm-hmm. It's a glory. To learn, yeah.
3: Practice with Guruji, and I think you should practice. I think you should come and practice there because I think you would really benefit from practicing with Guruji. And, yeah. uh, you know, at that time, I didn't know who Guruji was. I didn't know, like, where Mysore was. You know, because at that time, even though we had the intro to Mysore style works, it, and then I made the leap into the Mysore style classes, I, I didn't equate Mysore with a place. You know right. yeah. it's just yeah. like a weird name of a class. Yeah.
2: yeah.
3: Exactly. exactly. Wow. Like you should go. And then, you know, I went home and I went about my day and then I, I slept and then in the morning I thought, Yeah, I'm gonna go to Mysore. So I got on my bike, went to class and said to Guy, All right, I'm gonna go to Mysore, what do I do? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's and incredible. Then, yeah, and then he said, you know, you just write this letter to Guruji, you tell him your intention to practice and just send it off and like don't expect a reply and then just make the arrangements and then just go. And then, uh, he said, you know, and, um, obviously there was no, that letter was handwritten. I remember buying like this handmade paper and handwriting it and sending it off to India.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And, um, and because Guy left before me, um, then he said, Oh, why don't you, you uh, because I had a month before I was going to India, he was like, Oh, why don't you go practice with Eddie? and so that's what right. I did. And then okay. I practiced with Eddie for about a, and then I told him, Oh, I'm going to Mysore, and he was like, Oh, great, have a great time. Um, uh, mm-hmm. but that first trip, I was in Mysore for eight months, so wow, yeah, and that's, that's was a in, great long trip. That was 1998, right? That was 99. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. then so I went, um, yeah, so. Yeah. And it was good because, you know, guy had told me to go. And so he also, he sent a ragu to the airport, Bangalore airport, Mm -hmm. me up. So I felt a little bit taken care of because, I mean, Yeah, that's
2: a, that's a soft landing as they say.
3: Yeah. I went alone and still it was, yeah, it was just so, I mean, you know, India. It's like, yeah. yeah that People have
2: hard landings and they have soft landings. <laughs> that sounds like a soft landing. I had a, I was, I tried to have a soft landing, but I ended up having a really hard landing, even though I also had Guy kind of shepherding me on how to do the whole thing. And I still like, I, I couldn't have had a
3: worse landing. So oh, really? Yeah. Relatively soft, but it was still very, very surreal.
1: Very, um, it's very, unusual in India for women to travel alone. So you kind of are, um, need to be on your guard right away because. Yeah. And I was
3: young and I was also, you know, but I luckily like maybe, I don't know, six months before that, or a year before, maybe a year before I had gone to Cambodia and Thailand and traveled with a friend. And so there were many aspects of like let's say southeast asia at the time that were not so confronting to me like mm-hmm. i think it had been the first time i had gone to abroad or the first time but i had traveled extensively already um yeah. and i and it wasn't my first but yeah it's i think india's i mean as you all as we all know it's very confronting and it's very um strange for people yeah. who haven't grown up there <laughs> especially at that time you know and, yeah. and you land in the middle of the night and everything because at that time everything took longer also mm-hmm. yeah uh, but i definitely felt just even going about getting the visa at the indian embassy in new york city <laughs> was like the first touching yeah that's the first taste
2: <laughs> yeah and, really, and then, Enter India the moment you get on air, the Air India flight. Like you enter, you're there.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's good that the journey takes so long because it is like you're going to another world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really feels like that. I agree. And there were no. There's nothing for the mind to grasp onto as reference points. Let's say. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: That's a beautiful way. Beautiful about it too, because it made you sort of go beyond. Because because there's nothing to grasp onto, you're just sort of like flailing a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in that flailing, you can really sort of um, freak out, or you can surrender to it. And then that flailing, you can sort of surrender into like a floating, you know. Yeah. yeah. If you can allow yourself to.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Like for you, I wonder if, if this was a similar experience because that idea that the mind has nothing to grasp onto and, and there's no like familiar context or reference points. And so in a way for me, I found like my personality or like all the things that you equate with, like who you are, this constructed personality actually also kind of dissolves because there is none of those um, common contextual reinforcements for you to respond to. And so it's almost like, um, I don't know, like you, you touch into something that's deeper than, than the person you thought you were in in a way.
3: Especially, yes. Especially when we uh, were like, we touched upon that to talk about uh, personality constructs. And I think, also the kind of life I had lived in New York city prior to that, very, uh, and New York city being the kind of city it is very, you know, um, and the kind of people I was just very externally focused and, you know, mm-hmm. a certain aesthetic and uh, feeling this very like deep insecurity inside. And India was extremely liberating in that mm-hmm. sense. Wow. because It was like, there is no self con I mean, you just see the craziest stuff all the time.
2: You yeah. Know?
3: That in itself was so liberating, you know, and, um, that's interesting.
2: I found it, I found it really, yeah, very confronting. And I, I tried to reduce my time outside my room to a, as little as possible. Mm-hmm. And so I, I stayed in my room, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, unless it was for, well, no, it, maybe eight, you know, fifteen hours a day, unless it was specifically to eat or go do yoga. I did not want to be outside because I, f- I, f- I, was too much.
3: Why? Like in what way? It, um,
2: I felt uh, that it was almost like being autistic. That any any that the the noise level would rise up, and my my ability to endure it. Was so thin. Uh, coming from New York, right? Like it was like like a sensory <laughs> overload. It was sensory overload, and I could I would I would limit as, m- as much as possible so I wouldn't freak out. So I could maintain my energy, um, you know my my battery. And then, but then I would go to to Mysore to the to the foyer to go do the yoga, and I would like it was it was a horrible feeling of attachment and desire for status. And I was so like crazed with it. I was crazed to be for recognition and attention. And I remember my first real lesson in yoga. I was sitting there at the foyer, so anxious to get in there, so anxious to get in there and prove myself. And just to my left was, was Pete And he saw it in all of us. And I saw him seeing us. And I had the kind of wherewithal to to sort of see outside of myself and to see what he was seeing. And he was just sort of laughing silently in the corner as we all pressed forward.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Was was that, when you speak about the foyer, was that Gokulam or was that...
2: Yeah, that was Gokulam. Oh, so cool. That was two thousand three, okay. and I think Pete had a had a back injury at the time, and he was you know he was wanted to make sure that he was on the carpet and not on the on the marble. The
3: marble, yeah.
2: but um, so he was you know happy to wait. Um,
3: it's but it was because I, I at that time when we made the switch from Lakshmi Puram to Gokulam, I did not. That's where I made my break, and I started practicing. I. Like, I didn't mean it to sound like that might break, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> you made a break for it.
3: Well, I started practicing with Shraddh in a small group um, because oh. I was going through a massive knee injury. Um, and so and before it before we moved to Gokulam and I knew we were going to be practicing with, you know, you know, we're, it was had been 12 people in Lakshmi Puram at a time. Uh, in the room to, you know, I think they were saying 50 or 60 or 70 people in yeah. the room. And I was just like, whoa, I cannot do that. And so, yeah, I just, I talked to Shar and I said, can I please? And then he said, yes, but don't tell anyone because he didn't. <laughs> well, because it's the thing that if you practice, Sherat's group of students, which was very small at the time, and he was just, had just recently started, it was with mm-hmm. students who had never practiced with Guruji. And he yeah. they didn't want to have this like sort of crossover of students going, you know, and so, yeah. and so, yeah, so I didn't practice in that big shala during those first few. Wow. Um, can I,
2: can I ask you, you, you went for eight months and then you kept coming back. Mm. Why do you think you, you did that?
3: Cause I found my home. Mm. I found like, you know, I had, I mean, even though India was so like we say challenging and uh, confronting and just so many things, I just also felt just such a deep connection. Mm -hmm. Um, Both to the practice, but to myself, um, whatever that means, like self, whatever that means. But like, you know, in that first like when you talk about soft landing, I did sort of have it, but you know, I was still challenged in many, many ways, mm-hmm. but you know i I think by the end of the first week, I had already found my house, my flat, which was in front of Gabrielle. you guys know Gabriella so in her place, and she was like living continuously in Mysore, and I found my place mm-hmm. I just gave I said to the landowner, we had the same like I said, uh. I want this place for a year and I just hand, and he goes, okay, can you pay the year up front? And I was like, how much is it? And then he, I just paid up. I, yeah, I got a place for a year and that became my Meister home for three years before I found my, uh, you know, my home on the other side on Gokulam side. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. I just knew, you know, I just knew was I, where I had to be. And so, yeah that after that trip for eight months, I went back to New York city and I did actually practice with guy a little bit. And yeah. uh, cause he was then, like you said on Tompkins square park and Eddie had moved. And then uh, I did a little bit of an apprenticeship with guy. Yeah. And so, and then I went back to, my surf for nine months. And then oh. I went back to New York city. Uh, and then there was 2001. And then that was the, yeah, that was the 2001 trip where uh, Guruji came and 9, 11, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and that was the summer I got together with Pete and he was in New York city at the time. So yeah. So many- I,
2: I remember that. I remember Pete coming to visit guy and I remember them watching me practice because um, I, I for whatever reason i was the only one in the room and so they were just standing there together watching me practice uh maybe because i was the last one or something and they were just sitting and talking for like 20 minutes while they while they watched me
3: mm. was, that's the first time yeah, i saw covering, yeah he was covering for eddie at the time
2: oh um, yeah
3: he was in new york city and then yeah. uh and then eddie came back and then he was like oh why don't you stay guruji's coming um uh,
1: And so you ended up moving to New Zealand for a short period also,
3: right? Not really, because September 11th happened, which was, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, that could be a whole other story also. But uh, mid-October, mid-November, Pete and I actually left uh, New York City. And Mm -hmm. we went, first we went to Oviedo to visit Tomas up in Mm -hmm. Asturias, Spain, to just yeah. compress. And Tomas Zorzo uh, and, uh, um, and Pete are like brothers almost. Mm. They have mm. this relationship going way back in Mysore. And so we just spent, you know, just time up there in, in Asturias, which is very green and lush. And, and even though Oviedo is a city uh Tomas was living like up in the mountains and we just yeah it took some time to just practice and eat good food and breathe some clean air and uh and really just decompress. Mm. and then we made our way back to India and uh yeah we first to Mumbai and then to see Ramesh Belsakar and then we went down to Mysore and then that started a trajectory of about five years being with Pete and just traveling the world and um teaching and practicing in my store and I wouldn't say I ever really lived in New Zealand because uh I I just had three months at a time sort of on a tourist visa. So right. I would go that was and then which actually enabled me to spend a lot of time in India. So I would sort of spend time in India, go to New Zealand, do three months, go back to India, then go to wherever else we were going in the world. Um, right, yeah,
2: you know, like that. I was I was thinking about you and, and Pete at that time, and it reminded me a little bit of of how Kirsten Berg was was with Rolf, and and Kirsten, you know, is an accomplished yogi in her own right, like you, and yet here she is with this with this man who is um, extremely beloved and seems front and center, say, maybe, say, professionally. And I, I wondered if it, you know, if it made, it, I, I knew that for Kirsten, it made it really hard for her at times to feel so kind of overshadowed and, and at some points not seen. And I wanted to know if, if that's something that, that you experienced or that that resonated at all to kind of, to have that kind of relationship. Or was it that kind of relationship?
3: Well, first of all, I wasn't an accomplished yogi. I was, <laughs> I was really like just a beginner, you know. Um, so, and even now, I'd say I'm a beginner, you know. There's mm-hmm. it's an accomplished yogi. I don't. I never felt like an accomplished, and definitely at that time because I was young, uh, mm-hmm. I definitely didn't feel like an accomplished yogi. And so, no, I didn't have that, you know. But what I did witness was a lot of what you sp- sp- just spoke about was this happening in the foyer um like that i saw a lot of that happening in lakshmi Purim, just like this bubbling of this like anxiety or and like feelings and people and ambition and just all of the in people and uh yeah i mean i would have to say it's sort of like by god's grace i was with pete because he's just so stable and grounded and mm-hmm. um, centered and humble and um, doesn't buy into any of that, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and very devoted to the family and to Guruji and Sharat and even Saraswati. And, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time, I was so aware of how other people reacted to pete yeah
1: mm-hmm.
3: especially when we talk but as also in mysore i mean i remember once coming out of the shala in gokulam and you know you come out and there there's stairs and then there's that gate right and mm-hmm. i don't i don't know why because it wasn't at a normal time of day and we were coming out maybe we were having coffee with the family or something we right. came out, <laughs> literally This rickshaw pulls up. (laughs) This woman comes out and she looks, she sees us and she, she's like blonde and she's like, Oh my God, I can't believe this. The only two people I've ever wanted to meet are David Swenson and Peter Sanson. And here you are. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if we laughed outright, but we, I mean, we, I, it was just like one of those moments, but it was like people had this reaction to Pete. You know?
2: yeah.
3: yeah. And I mean, I, I cite that one because it's sort of the pinnacle of like, but it was like that, you know? Yeah. yeah but not have been more opposite in terms of his being, you know? So he yeah. evoked this certain kind of thing in people, but he was yeah. so impervious to that. You know,
2: it was, it's an interesting scene at that point with the Shunga yoga, because you've got a very small group of people and within those group of people, um, a few of them were extremely famous to us. You know, David Swenson or Richard Freeman or Peter, um, Dina Kingsbrook, they were they were really famous. They were so famous, but just to us. <laughs>
1: to a very small number of people on the planet.
2: And just you could us? be starstruck by them, even though nobody else knew who they were at all.
3: Right. And just to like just to us, but also to just a small group of us too. Because yeah. um yeah. I don't, I mean, I think probably now people, everyone, I mean, I don't know, I guess people, everyone, you know, people sort of become part of the folklore part of this. I don't, you know, it's like, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. I had not heard of, unlike i actually met Pete on, on that first trip to my, I'm on my first trip to Mysore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, I had no idea who he was, you know, I remember yeah, yeah. at con- Tim, actually there were a lot of people at my first trip to Mysore. Um, you know, Ralph was there for sure. Ralph and Kirsten were there. Mm-hmm. Tim Miller was there with his son. Um, Guy obviously was there. Um, yeah, maybe Lino came through. I mean, because I was there for yeah. such a long time that yeah. those few trips. Yeah, everyone came through.
2: You know? Sure. Yeah.
3: Um, but yeah, so no, I didn't feel that. You know, um because I also wasn't teaching. I I be I assisted Pete, and I felt very comfortable in that role um, okay you know, just I think my personality lends itself yeah. to that I like sort of being invisible and um just doing the work but not having to engage so much I, you know it's funny because I used to be like hyper shy you know and I think that's how I often got misread because right. I am so shy but mm-hmm. then when, people see me sometimes with people that I know or that I'm very comfortable with, I can look like I'm not at all. So I think that people get like this sort of like different perspective of me, you know, mm-hmm. but I think that shyness sometimes, oh, not sometimes, often came off as coldness or aloofness, yeah. or not wanting to engage or... You know? I remember you said
1: something really interesting to me uh, I think it was, I don't know, at a lunch or something we were having at the Southern Star, and we were talking about language, and you lived in, it was Barcelona, right? or mm, When
3: I was living in yeah. Spain, yeah.
1: Yeah, and so you also like became fluent in Spanish, and you were speaking Spanish um, when you were living there, obviously, but then you grew up speaking English, and you, were, you said that you felt like you had a very different personality when you were
3: speaking Spanish than when you spoke English. Oh, completely. And now completely when I, I mean, make, when I make an attempt to speak Korean, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just curious, like, can you, um, talk a bit more about that? Like how, how does the language change like your inner feelings or your inner expressions? That then relate to like outer expressions, I guess, right?
3: Yeah, it's it's language is, is so interesting, you know, because it's like it's obviously we need it for communication, um, but how one is able to express oneself through that communication, I guess, is dependent on language, right? So, um, I know what, I I know what you're referring to when I said that. And I do feel like that. I feel like when I speak, and I think that's why I moved to Spain at a certain point because of what I was experiencing, especially in the Shtangav community, by being with, I did feel in some ways restricted and inhibited. And every time we went to Spain, the Spanish are so warm and open and, um, yeah, I somehow through the language and the speaking of Spanish, I was able to connect with that, with that feeling mm. of openness and that feeling of um, warmth and laid backness, and yeah, all of that.
2: Hmm. Mm. That's interesting. I, 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 that resonates with me as well. Was when I was in England, I noticed that I would use a different part of my body to speak with, and mm. you know, I would use my diaphragm to speak and I would speak more slowly and I would enunciate and try to form complete sentences before they came out of my skull. (laughs) And whereas when I'm in America and I'm with my brother, I'm, I stutter. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to, I'm I'm figuring out what I'm going to talk about um, while I'm saying it.
1: Hmm.
2: And it's a completely different personality at that point. And it's, and uh, it's it's so interesting the way that that geography you know makes us
3: for sure, you know I feel like I had that i mean you yeah, being multilingual growing up where at home Flemish was only spoken um
1: mm-hmm. wow.
3: and then speaking obviously English outside and at a certain point also just speaking English at home um But also, you know, when I studied Italian and German and, yeah, just language is just, yeah, phenomenal. But Mm -hmm. also makes us, yeah, now like learning Korean and I'm having like such an incredibly difficult time learning the language. And because it's so difficult, feeling in many ways, very bound and restricted Um, Mm -hmm. and almost, I don't want to say silenced, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. very, very
2: bizarre. Why do you, why do you think you came back to Korea or went to Korea rather?
3: Why I came back to Korea? Oh, that's Mm -hmm. a long story. So I was covering for, so after Pete and I separated, um, I may, uh, what the Yeah. I was sitting there thinking about, okay, where am I going to go in the world? (laughs) And I thought of all the places that we had been during our traveling of five years. And I, uh, Barcelona was always the place, well, Spain, but then we started going to Barcelona maybe in 2003 was the first time Elena invited us to teach there. Yeah. Then I just, it was the time that I would walk the streets. And and because I had had that earlier connection in Barcelona in uh, when I was traveling, Barcelona I, was also such a weird touching point, you know, that I went back to. And then we went there yearly to teach a workshop. And it was the place that when I walked the streets, I was like, oh, I love this place. I could live here. Um, mm. And so then, yeah, it was sort of like, oh, maybe I should try to live. there, <laughs> mm. And so I went and at that time I helped um, or, uh, yeah, I set up Elena's morning ashtanga program because she was only teaching in the evenings because uh you know barcelona and most of the med and you know the mediterranean countries they're um they have very different lifestyle and very yeah. and, you know yeah. at that time it was unheard of trying to start something in the mornings but i was like no it can happen let's do it and so she was like okay go ahead so i started <laughs> uh And then after, you know, we had a little bit of a falling out and then after six months I left, I went back to Mysore and then, um, I think then I went and covered for Jose in Madrid. Ah. It was in Madrid that I covered for Jose and he went to Mysore for four months and, you know. Barcelona is quite temperate. It's sort of like has, you know, it's got a, it doesn't have very cold winters. Mm-hmm. Um, and But Madrid is completely different climatically. And so I think I went there in January and it was just freezing. And <laughs> it was, uh, I had just come from doing also a series of Vipassanas. And all of a sudden it was like, I just decided that I was going to treat that time in Madrid sort of as one long Vipassana mm-hmm. almost. And I was very disciplined, very austere um, but also very deeply uh, struggling internally around the loss of that relationship around um, my place in the world around that idea of home. Um, mm-hmm. And as oftentimes is the case around my birthday, I think about my origins and I think, Think not knowing one's origins and not having an origin story or an origin narrative um, is very, I don't know, the word, but um, it's very very, feel lost. Yeah, you feel lost. You you know. So I decided to do a birth family search, Mm, (laughs) and. I start, I just, uh, so that must have been 2007 maybe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I Googled my adoption agency and, um, I I guess this is all making me sound like I live sort of in this bubble (laughs) because of uh, existence, because I really didn't know all of this stuff existed like post adoption. So anyways, um, you know, my, adoption agency they had a website they had a small thing called post-adoption services and it you clicked on it and then it was like this uh thing you had to fill out and it's off I sent it away and then didn't hear back and then you know wrote them again asking them if they had and then yeah just the process started like that they were like who are you um can you send us proof of identification and so I sent that and then they were like okay we have your file uh, it looks quite intact. Um, we will start searching, and if we find anything, we'll let you know.
2: Wow. You
3: know, I at this point had not really come across any other Korean adoptees except for my brother, and maybe, and we're not biologically related. Uh, and we mm. never talked about being adopted while we were growing up, weirdly enough. But, mm. um, and then maybe a couple. Uh, when I was at the university, oh no. Yeah. University of Wisconsin, Madison. And then later in New York city, I met a couple, but it wasn't like, again, I didn't identify myself neither as Korean nor as a Korean adoptee, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, but so, but and maybe it's my nature to be quite apprehensive or to keep my expectations low, but I had absolutely no expectations of finding out anything. And they did find my parents in a very, very short amount of time. Wow. Um, and so I was looking only for my father because at the time that I had initiated the birth family search, because he was the only, he in my adoption file, um, which is always just a few lines, um, mm-hmm. he was the person that was mentioned and a name. I had a name for him. And in my adoption file, it had said that I had, uh, yeah, been raised by my mother for a year. And then she gave me to my father and his family. And then after a few months, my father was incapable of taking care of me and, and relinquished me. I gave me up for adoption. And so, and they had no name for my mother. So I always had felt like I had constructed from these few lines a totally false identity, one that I was half Chinese, one that my mother had left me, and, like, you know, that, anyways. And what do you do when you try to construct identity, right, in your origin? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was the new moon in April of 2007 um, that I heard the agency wrote me, and they said, We have found your father. Not only have we found your father, but we also found your mother. And I was just, again, completely blown away. (laughs) Oh yeah. And yeah, and then it started from there. And then because I was so um, unprepared, let's say, they had to sort of talk me through it. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole different podcast. I mean, you can. (laughs) that story if you want it is actually a podcast it's on a korean adoptee podcast oh, wow. of my birth family reunions about that whole journey i mean and it is so intertwined with my yoga journey and i feel like especially what we're talking about in terms of consciousness and i mean it's just been so revealing and uh yeah, confronting it in so many ways, you know. I mean, when you I've wrote seen- me like, oh, it feels like a lifetime since we've seen it. I mean, I feel like lifetimes. I mean, I feel like. <laughs> wow. I mean, just to be talking to you guys now. And to be like sitting here in Korea and. Mm hmm to be talking about like well, all these stages in my life it's like it's crazy how much we go through in one lifetime but
1: yeah
3: yeah but i i mean when we talk about the consciousness it's like it's really that wild wow, it's vast it's just like um, if you can be really present for it you know it yeah. is just it is really mind blowing
2: <laughs> i've heard people talk about how it goes so fast but i i'm not experiencing that <laughs> It's really taking a long time, if you ask me. (laughs) This is really taking a very long time, life.
3: It is, but it's not. I mean, there have been times, many, many times in my life. And I think especially I did feel a sense of beyond my years from very early on. And people would often say that, like, oh, wow, you're so beyond your... But, yeah, like it's just so long. And then it's just so short. It's just so weird. I mean, time is very elastic, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We experience time yeah. both in hindsight, but both in, and in the present moment. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. I feel like with your, you know, search for your origins and your a feeling of home and belonging, um, and identity, you know, it, It's like you've rebirthed yourself so many times in so many different uh, sort of manifestations of self. And yet, you know, there's this, like you said, this stream of consciousness or this, you know, pure awareness that links them all together
3: somehow. For sure. Exactly. You know, and but there are also stages, you know, like. I like I said I had that Lakshmi Puram flat and then I went and when the shala was going to move over to Gokulam I had found a flat in not in Gokulam in Vivi Mohalla. Uh,
2: oh yeah. Uh,
3: near the crem like by when I say near the crematorium it's sort of like you had to take that crematorium road from yeah uh, Gokulam let's say and you would go the back towards like the Green restaurant. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, I know yeah. that I took that route in all the time.
3: That neighborhood. And it was really quiet yeah. and leafy green. And you know, I had that flat there for 15 years, I think. Wow. I mean, I, I went to my store in November 2017 to close it up. And when I closed mm-hmm. up that flat, I was like, this is it. This is the end of an era. Yeah. yeah you know, and it did feel like that. It felt like uh yeah, the end of an era. The end of uh, mm-hmm. my life, let's say. That yeah. life. Yes, obviously that life is continuous, but mm, that Mysore life, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: And what are you doing now in Soor? You are you? You're learning language. Are you in school? Are you teaching yoga as well? What's your I life am, like there? I
3: am teaching yoga. I mean, it's the reason why I came. Uh, well, it's not the reason. I wanted to, I, so I came back in 2012 and I met my birth father. And like I said, if you want to you listen to that podcast, you
2: mm-hmm. can. Uh,
3: and then I came back in 2014 and I met my birth mother and I also discovered information about my birth father. Uh, because the thing is, is that I, I, when I met my birth father, I was a complete secret to his family. He had married and he had had other children, but I was completely, uh, you know, he had, right. Had never told them about my existence. Yeah. Um, and so as is very common in Korean society, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but that experience in, it was December of 2014, um, of meeting my mother and that whole trip, which yeah, just it completely flattened and blindsided me. And then I was really very unwell um, mm-hmm. for quite a long time. And I reached out to people to s- and the practice was not the Shtanga Asana practice uh, mm-hmm. one of the practice. Um, did not feel like it was supporting me or it was nourishing me in the way that I needed. It felt very um, jarring to my nervous system. So mm-hmm. uh, I cut my f- practice way back to, um, you know, I only did primary, uh, you know, doing intermediate or even doing third felt so um I don't want to say wrong, but it did feel wrong to my system. Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Yeah.
3: And um, yeah, I just, when we talk, when you said that about like it being uh, lifetimes, I've, and you saying, oh, it's been going on so long, I have felt acutely at many times like exhausted. Yeah. yeah. To the core of living. You know, Mm -hmm. and I Mm -hmm. definitely, I think all that came. I was confronted with and faced, had to face at that time. uh, I was exhausted. It was like Mm -hmm. so much of the past that I had not known, but maybe that I had lived, like physiologically, came out of my unconscious or subconscious, and it was so overwhelming. And I did not know what to do with it. And uh, what I knew that I needed was I needed space. I needed time. I needed in many ways to do nothing. um, And I needed to heal. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, But how that was going to come about, I didn't really know um, to make long story short, I reached out to a bunch of people to ask them what they helped in times of like deep crisis, let's say, and what helped them, um, to heal. And so much information came back to me. Uh, but, um, do you know Liz Derow? Oh yeah. Okay. So she, she and I have always kept in touch over the and then she just wrote, she just it, it wasn't even a message, she didn't even say hello or like she just sent me this link. And when I opened the link, it said Tishnan Han has left the Bordeaux hospital because he had suffered a massive stroke, right? And, and right, left the Bordeaux hospital to go back to Plum Village. Um, and I was just like, that's where I need to go, I need to go to Plum Village because. What was so devastating, I think, about the reunion with my birth mother was she had suffered a cerebral stroke and she was paralyzed, unable to speak. And I don't think that anything could have prepared me for that meeting. Wow. Even though I knew about her physical condition, nothing, nothing could have prepared me for that meeting.
2: Being actually confronted... Because it must feel very much like you're being confronted with like yourself.
3: One is, yes, you're confronted with yourself, but there's also, you know, I, I think there's things that, even though, let's say, you don't have an expect, one tries not to have expectation, but I think one wants to hear in birth family readings like I'm sorry I love you I'm sorry I gave you up um all of those things but because my mother is not able to speak and not it's not that I wanted necessarily to, but I mean that's what those are words that my father I mean my father was extremely um yeah you know he's he didn't say I love you but he yeah, he was felt deeply sorry for having given me up. Um, but there was, we were able to communicate and, and I could see that this was a man who, you know, first of all, cause I was a secret to him, but that he had so much emotions bound up with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the time that I met him, I had no emotions bound up with it really. I mean, I think I was just in shock. And then Mm -hmm. the meeting with my mother was completely different. But then after that, uh, you know, um, yeah, it was just a different, I think. And then someone told me that I was suffering from PTSD and um, yeah. And then anyways, Liz sent me that link. i opened it. And I was like, Plum Village is where I need to go. And I wrote them literally, it's like, I wrote them on a, Tuesday, I was like, I'd like to come into retreat because um, i that's what I felt like I needed to do. I needed to be in retreat. But at the same time, I'd done many Vipassana retreats and I also did not feel just as I did not feel like the Ashtanga practice, the Asana Ashtanga practice was nourishing for me. I did not feel like the rigor, let's say, or the mm-hmm. nature of the Vipassana, Goenkaji style vipassana was also going yeah. to be nourish, nourishing to me. So yeah. I just went with intuition, like I did with, you know, just like when I went to Mysore and Guy told me, go to Mysore. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. I just like, I need to get to Plum Village. So I wrote them and said, can I come? uh And they're like, yes, you can come this Friday. Our retreats always start on a Friday. And, and like, because they're, when they're open for retreat, let's say there's a, there's a, you just go in on a Friday and you leave on a Friday. And I was like, okay. I'm going, and so I went, and it changed my life, you know. And again, I went for two weeks, which is the maximum you can si- you can either sign up for one week or two weeks, and uh, mm-hmm. the maximum. But then, if you resonate with the um, practices and with the sangha, you can request a- You have to write a letter to the monastic sangha asking them for an extended stay, and that's. Mm-hmm. My- and I stayed for the entire spring retreat. I stayed for two months, and wow, it was just mm. so incredibly healing. Um, mm. And I came out of that, and then, and then I went on the yatra in, uh, in uh, the first yatra with Sharat. Oh, right with Sharat. I wanted, you know, I think it's because of what's brought me to also to all the practices. This idea of purification, and um, I think I had grown up with this idea. And again, let's say, because it depends on the perspective, right? And also this idea of our um our constructed personalities coming out of ignorance or not ignorance sometimes but limitation or limited consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. I always felt like I must have done something horribly or been horribly wrong or something was, you know, at my core. Something was incredibly wrong for me to have been given up and so my whole life yeah. I felt like was this need and this, this desire to purify yeah, as pure as possible
1: yeah
2: and so from there you thought to live in, in Korea for again for some time
3: no <laughs> I went on the Yatra and then uh again the yatra was so you know you go on these journeys and all of these places you know Mysore plum village the yatra the even vipassana which they're like portals right they're portals yeah. to like different states of being and different consciousnesses right mm-hmm. uh, and i would always feel i mean also deeply challenged but they were so transformative You know, and they were so healing. And I did feel like I would come to a deeper understanding or reach, have, you know, more clarity or deeper insights. And then sort of when I went back to, let's say, mundane life, I would sort of slip into a bit of a, um, I I don't want to call it depression, but. Ennui. Yeah, a little bit, you know, and yeah. then, I mean, I maybe it's like what addicts suffer with, you know, is that feeling again. And so yeah. that's what compels one to return to Mysore to come, you know, to go on another retreat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so then I went back to Plum Village because I felt like I had more work that I needed to do, more internal work that I needed to do. And again, I spent another two months there. Um, then we went back to Korea in August of 2016, and I we went for a month. The first trips were very short. I mean, short meaning. Uh, well, the first trip where I met my father was two weeks. But before that, and you'll listen if you listen to the other podcast, we went to North Korea for two weeks for ten days. Wow but that's a totally different story but my second trip where i met my oma was 10 days and then i just wanted to experience korea not so emotionally you know i wanted Mm -hmm. and also because of what i had experienced even though plum village was extreme and Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings resonated with me so much, you know, because there's so many parallels in terms of that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh being this Vietnamese Buddhist monk, um, you know, Vietnam also having been through this horrific war uh, Mm -hmm. that basically split their country into two, just like Korea into North and Mm -hmm. South, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, the boat people from, Vietnam being, you know, basically refugees and in Korea, the case being that all the Korean adoption system started out of the orphans that came and the mixed race children that came out of the war. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there were so many and and Tisha Han's teachings come from that experience, you know, from his experience of being a refugee, uh, you know, being homeless, given um, um, asylum in France um and it's like I f- was on these two parallel paths because I read my first Tichnad Han book in Mysore on my first trip in nineteen ninety-nine. And wow. and I, I read a lot of Tichnad Han over the years and I was always very attracted to his teachings and always had this desire to go to Plum Village. And then I guess there are these like, you know, as you know, I know harmony from uh because you've done so much Buddhist study, um, and I've listened to your podcast, it's like, you know, this idea of um, interdependent co-arising, right? So Mm -hmm. all the causes and conditions have to be in place for certain things to manifest, right?
1: Mm -hmm. And
3: so I felt like, yeah, that time in 2015 on my first trip to Plum Village was the first time that I was actually there, but in many ways we can receive the dharma through books or through you know however yeah it comes to us you know yeah um, and
1: all these things kind of build and attract you to a certain place and time right like the the rising and then the dissipation
3: mm, mm. yeah so then um we came here for a month, and I also knew, yeah, from like I said, from the plum that I needed to do a lot of internal work and I needed support. So I started to look for Korean adoptee support networks. And I heard about a Korean adoptee conference happening in Seoul in August of 2016. So I came for that, but also just wanted to experience Korea on a, on a less, maybe, emotionally raw. Uh, even though I did see my birth family at that time, uh, actually just my birth mother because I I then the trip where I met my birth mother, I said goodbye to my birth father and I haven't had contact with him since then. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a long, complicated story, but um, that trip was like you know a trip where I walked the streets of Seoul. <laughs> You'll laugh. Mm-hmm. At- going I'm
2: Korean
3: Korean." (laughs) (laughs) I just loved every I mean it was summer which is always like I love warmth I guess um, after all those years in India and being with Pete and you know we always had endless summer between northern and southern hemisphere but I was just like you know I loved the food I was, we were going to exhibitions, you know, it was just like, yeah. at the time that was just like, wow, I love the aesthetic. I loved, you know, they have so many yeah. beautiful art forms and it's, it's a very culturally rich tradition on many, it's, you know, and really. It's yeah, profound. It's a
2: profound, it's a profound civilization.
3: And because I had not known anything about it and my first trips were sort of obliterated by these very massive emotional upheavals, that trip was really like, you know, I don't want to say blissful, but it was sort of like that. And then, you know, the flip side of uh, sukha is dukkha, right? So I went Mm -hmm. back to Barcelona and I went back into that place of dukkha and that's when I, I went into the... Uh, 2016 2017 winter retreat at the rains retreat it's called a monastic retreat at plum village deeply uh considering monastic uh aspiration my monastic Mm. Uh, having to come out of that retreat because uh we had had on that 2016 trip we had made a gallery connection in 2000 uh in at that time and they wanted to exhibit uh, my exhibition called broken hole um mm. broken and whole w-h-o-l-e not, mm-hmm. yeah, that's not so H-O-L-E. beautiful not yes. whole, because actually that's what i had fall, felt like i'd fallen into in order to get to w-h-o-l-e mm-hmm. yes <laughs> i fallen into the hole to get whole but that mm. feeling of both being broken and whole so that. Yeah, we had uh, that exhibition in March of 2017. Uh, And then that is actually during that time. I don't... Did you meet Greg and uh, Yujong? Yes. Yeah, I know Greg and Yujong. Okay, so they invited... They were going to go teach in the Netherlands and they invited me to cover for them. And so... uh, so I covered for them also. And so then I spent like maybe four months that time in Korea and a good chunk of it on my own because, you know, Bruno, he has a job and he, you know, he can't take mm-hmm. that amount of time off. Mm-hmm. So and then t- being able to teach and, uh, you know, sharing the practice was also extremely healing here for me you know -hmm. and and meeting Koreans in that way through because I had sort of community around the Korean adoptee community but what I didn't realize was so much healing I needed to do around just the people you know Mm -hmm. that that feeling of separation and that feeling of abandonment was not just personal or individual it was like cultural it was like you know, just the whole of it, you know. And -hmm. then deeper I got sort of into, or not deeper, but just a little bit that I scratched on of like Korean adoptee activism, just how it's a system, you know, and how deeply, deeply interwoven into politics, into government, into money, into, wow, just, it's crazy, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that's just sort of started the trajectory of, feeling desire, let's say, or attachment. And I did have this longing and I kept on having this longing of wanting to spend more time in Korea, you know, of mm-hmm. discovering what that meant and and um what it is to be Korean or and um like I said to have not grown up you know most people let's say who are Korean American they grow up with parents who grew up in Korea and are culturally Korean and can give yeah. them culture right and yeah. that understanding but i had none of that and then i moved here fall of 2018 the mysore program uh which is why i came here because i got invited to teach here um from a studio and i set up a my and uh i just closed that on saturday oh
2: but that wasn't like where we are it's not covid related
3: in korea it's not, it, it was because the building was bought by uh, changed owners and uh, new owners are real estate developers and they're going to demolish okay. the building. Yeah. So, uh, so but COVID related because, uh, the, the studio where I'm at, they have four locations and they're closing two of them. We just closed okay. that one on Saturday and then they're closing their Cheongdam location in uh, a couple of mm-hmm. weeks on the 15th. So, I mean, we're the very, I think we have experienced COVID-19 different than, differently than other places in the world, but sure. it has still been teaching during it and, you know, opening and closing according to what the regu- government regulations are, um, honestly, and now the numbers at least... You know, they're high. I mean, in c- terms of Korean standards, in other places, they'd be like, what? That's not high. But, like,
2: yeah.
3: um, you know, because they take such uh, strong measures in order to keep mm-hmm. it under control. Uh, and those just, you know, new regulations went into place. And literally, when on December 1st, so I felt like I crossed this finish line of this very long, arduous marathon of the year <laughs> and you know keep we managed to stay safe and healthy and I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we did so now i'm teaching december online to my students um but and then that might be it for me because as you know the word han russell you probably would know the word jong right which is this, mm. time, this feeling of like deep connection and and I have to say, my students have really felt that for me. And I have felt that for them. And I think it's been very, especially at this time when there has been so much uncertainty around COVID-19. And it's been a stressful year for many, on many different levels. Um, you know, just how, trying to give them a softer transition, you know, mm-hmm. by supporting them online. Um, but to find me online, I'm, you know, my Instagram account is private my facebook account i'm never on so i'm not really into those things
2: but that's that's very refreshing and i'm really grateful i'm really profoundly grateful that you that you shared your story with us today you're
1: you're ready to start a new life a new rebirth a new chapter now
3: well let's see yeah i know i'm not (laughs) it's not quite clear yet but uh yeah let's see where this takes us amazing thank you so much for coming
1: on our show today
3: thank of you. course
1: thank it's you for so nice me. to talk to you
3: uh and it's been a pleasure to hear all the de- you know it has been like this trip down memory lane listening to different people speak you know um uh, and different guests you've had it's been very comforting during this time when mm-hmm. i'm feeling you know because korea's it does feel like at the end of the world, you know. <laughs>
2: yeah. or, oh, thank you.
3: I mean, not at the end of the world, but you know what I mean. It feels very distant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been nice, and it's been nice to reconnect with both of you. Thank you so much. Oh,
2: thank, thank you. Come up,
3: 감사합니다. 안녕히
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. <laughs> With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.
1: Standing in eternity's
3: shadow, watching the breaking waves, there's a hard way so.